face the difficulties of today and tomorrow. I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. This nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Good evening and welcome to episode one of the Policy Dialogue series with alumni, staff, faculty, and students from the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. The views expressed do not represent official positions of the school or alumni network. Our goal is to discuss specific policy solutions that can address and solve the current local, national, and international challenges we face. We are recording this on September 24th, 2020. My name is Evan Papp and I graduated with the class of 2011 with a focus on international security and economic policy. Joining me tonight are fellow alumni, Esther Rodriguez, Delisha Thompson, and Jazz Lewis. How's everyone doing? Doing well, how are you? Doing all right. I am doing excellent and can't wait to get into it. Great, great. Great, it's great to see all you here. So before we dive in, I'd like to go around and have you discuss your relation to the School of Public Policy, like when you graduated, what you focused on, what you are currently working on, or what are your current interests? So let's begin with Delisha. Problem. Well, hi everyone, I'm Delisha Thompson. I graduated from the School of Public Policy in spring 2018. Although I didn't specialize, my coursework concentrated on education and mental health policy. And my capstone specifically focused on post-secondary education and mental health policy solutions. Uh, after I graduated, I lived in Taiwan for two years and taught at a university there. And currently I'm working with a friend on his NSF grant to get his medical prototype off the ground. And last but not least, I am also preparing for law school so we can put policy into practice. It's a lot on your plate. Uh, <laughs> a lot of experience, a lot of perspective. Uh, great to have you, Delisha. Uh, Esther, um, you want to kind of give a go around on what you're up to? Sure. Um, my name is Esther Rodriguez, and I actually graduated from the School of Public Policy in 2018. Um, I was actually part of the first undergraduate cohort that graduated. Um, public policy is a fairly new major to the University of Maryland for undergraduate studies. Um, right after that, I went and pursued a um, master's at American Universities, and I just secured that in May. I have an, a master's in education policy and leadership. Um, right after graduation, I worked for an education nonprofit um, in Washington, D.C. in Ward 5. I was there for about a year, and then um, the associate dean, Dr. Nina Harris, at the School of Public Policy um, called me and asked me if I wanted to come join and help recruit, um, and I didn't give it a second thought. Um, the opportunity to work with my mentors was was not an easy one to pass up. And I've now been at the School of Public Policy for going on a year next month. Um, my roles kind of changed. Um, initially, I started working for undergraduate studies um, to work on programming and recruitment um, for the undergraduate program. Um, but since then, I've been brought on for a new initiative um, that is 
hopefully going to launch really, really soon. Um, it's a special initiative called Civic Maryland. And um, the purpose of that initiative is to increase civic education and participation, not just in College Park, but um, in PG County, in the community, and uh, in Maryland as a whole. And our most important um, focus points right now are getting that census in, um, completed, um, and voting November 3rd. Great. Thank you so much. And uh, Mr. Lewis, uh, batons to you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here uh, with Alicia, Esther, and Evan. Um, I graduated in the class of 2014. Uh, I focused in federal acquisition and um, international development. I had my original thought coming to the program is that I was going to see how we can use uh, government contracting in other nations to help with um, you know, development, particularly in building people's economy and allowing them to be uh, resilient of their own. Um, uh, upon graduating from the program, I got hired to work for Congressman Steny Hoyer, uh, who's the majority leader of the House of Representatives, originally running his campaign and doing that along with the work I did before policy school as a community organizer, uh, just grounded me in issues of criminal justice reform, uh, I'm from Prince George's County, born and raised. Uh, so as I was kind of going back into the communities and seeing a lot of the struggles there, I felt like I needed to direct my mind and my intention back home, um, as well as issues of racial wealth uh, inequality. Uh, I currently serve in the Maryland legislature, representing the 24th legislative district uh, as the chair of the House Democratic Caucus. And I pursue a lot of criminal justice reform policies, of course, police accountability, but also things on prison reform that I, I think we also really need to talk about, um, you know, from reproductive health issues in prison to issues of mental health and access to uh, appropriate uh, and quality healthcare in prison that we often don't think about, uh, as well as making sure we're doing all we can to restore people to the communities once they exit the, the care of the state. Um, Outside of my role in the legislature, I now serve as a senior policy advisor for Congressman Hoyer, working on issues of small business, uh, criminal justice reform, and economic mobility. Um, I've been very happy that during this pandemic, uh, one of the few things I've been able to keep motivated is that I am fighting with a number of cha uh, change warriors uh, to push things like the CARES Act, to make sure resources are going to folks um, who need it. Uh, so I'll, I'll stop there because I think there's a lot I'd like to dive into on how much more I think we need to do, uh, but I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Great. Very excited to have you all on. Uh, so kind of introducing uh, our first episode, presidential debate between Trump and Biden will be on next Tuesday, September 29th. And Chris Wallace of Fox News will moderate the debate. And according to the Associated Press, the topics will focus on the Trump and Biden records, the Supreme Court, COVID-19, the economy, race and violence in our cities, and the integrity of the election. So tonight, we're going to discuss some of these policies around these topics. So we're going to kick it off. First topic, race and violence in our cities. And I just want to kind of bring up this article because the framing of this topic is problematic. And according to a September 23rd article in the Washington Post, 
quote, race and violence in our cities suggests that the primary issue surrounding the protests this summer is violence, not justice. And that it is ex explicitly race-based and urban-centered. It also shifts the focus away from the cause of the protests themselves. The use of deadly force by police against African-Americans and racial inequities in general, unquote. So we're gonna broaden this discussion, discuss policies around racial justice, police brutality, and other things. So I'm gonna throw it out to y'all. Who, who would like to go first on this one? Yeah, I, I'll <laughs> definitely kick this one off. What I feel like so many people, when they're having this discussion, they never think about, if you give somebody, like I'm from Baltimore, to be clear to the audience. So if you're giving people barely their necessities for survival, like food, water, and shelter, how exactly do you, what, are, what do you expect is going to happen? There's few resources, people aren't getting their basic needs met, that creates violence. Every time we've done studies that where communities have been specifically provided resources so that those needs are met, the rate of violence goes down. Why? Because people don't have to fight for resources. So I think we need to keep this in mind when we have discussions, when we see protests uh, that in Baltimore, at the very least, nobody owns anything. And in, in the parts of Baltimore City where you see that happen, they don't, why, why would they feel any type of way for something they don't own and can't own because of the structures that are set up? So I think people need to keep in mind that while we don't want to resort to violence to get justice, understand that it is decades of pent up rage and anger and frustration that nobody is listening. And let's be clear, protest, the purpose of protest is to be disruptive. And if people feel like violence is the only, like burning down a store is the only way, I can't really fault them for that in the sense of they, have, they don't see any other option to get any attention on the issue. Um, agreed. Um, but I'd go even beyond that. Um, first of all, if my daughter was shot and killed by the police, um, in the middle of the night and every last one of them got off, I'd be burning it all down too. You better believe I would be. If my son was, um, killed in broad daylight by somebody who's getting paid by my tax dollars, um, where, you know, you can literally see the life being taken from him on stream, you better believe I'm burning it down and I'm taking anyone that's in my way. That's just a human response to, to pain and to just a, a, a very basic, decent respect for human life, right? Um, and Breonna Taylor doesn't have to be my daughter and George Floyd doesn't have to be my son to understand exactly what's happening out in the streets. Um, one thing that I didn't mention in my intro is when I graduated in 2018, I was 20 years senior, my cohort. You know, I am originally from Washington, D.C., born and bred. I am in Maryland because gentrification pushed me out. Um, great state, but it will never, ever be the city. <laughs> um, but I lived through, 
you know, Rodney King. I lived through um, riots in Mount Pleasant when a, um, actually then, I believe it was a female black officer killed um, a Latino in, on Mount Pleasant Street, which in that time was predominantly Hispanic and they took to the streets. Um, you know, anybody that continues to focus on buildings and drywall, and I say that fully aware that I understand that a lot of these businesses represent people's livelihoods, small businesses in particular, um, represent people's livelihoods. It um, oftentimes provides jobs for, um, you know, their employees, for the community, they're, they're providing needs and services. I, I get that. But at what point, you know, is enough enough? And we can dispute this, but the reality is this country has historically acted once we've gotten fed up and fought back. I mean, if you can look at every historical piece of legislation that's passed that has influenced civil rights, not a single one has gone without violence in the street. And I'm not saying that this is the means to an end, but at what point, you know, one thing that I hear a lot is, you know, not all police officers are bad. The majority are good. I used to say that myself. I don't believe it anymore. I don't believe it anymore. I'm not saying that there aren't very good police officers. Um, but I will say that even if you get in with the best intentions possible, something happens to them when they're in that position. And this is, it's got to give, you know, now I'm one of those dismantle the police. I honestly think that we should dismantle law enforcement and start all over again because these systems were created during a time where Delisha was not a person. Jazz Lewis was, you know, counted as half a human, third of a human or whatever, you know, like these, these systems were not built to protect black people. And until that system gets, and I, that's why I say not reformed, screw reform. This has been argued over and over again until it is dismantled and started from the bottom up. This is never going to stop. So, um, if I, I can, yeah, I want I want Jazz to come in, and then I I do want us to also talk about some of the solutions as well, because I think we all agree it's it's a pretty effed up situation as well, and and how we need to, what do we need to change ultimately? So so, adding Mr. Jazz, please. Yeah. So I um. Yeah, I mean, I, I second and third everything that uh, both Delisha and Esther uh, have said. Um, we know that policing started with uh, slave catchers in America. Uh, we know that that is the original policing in America was focused on capturing property and black people were property at the time, right? Uh, the same way if someone broke into your house and took your TV, you wanted your TV back and you would call the police to report that. That is the exact same way policing started, but focused on um, policing black bodies. And there hasn't been a lot of change uh, uh, since those codes in the early 1800s. And what I mean by that is oftentimes as um, folks of color start to announce their presence either through 
uh, housing or through entering in schools, the initial response from communities is to call the police to be the enforcer of what uh, we, we, we think is uh, appropriate within this social construct that we call society, right? Um, so in some ways, uh, I pity the police um, because they get the brunt of the policy. They get the brunt of the blame for things that society as a whole has allowed to happen. They are the enforcer for the values we claim, okay? So when we allow certain communities to be over-policed, it's because we put policies in place to require them to do so, okay? When police aren't held accountable for their actions, it's because as a society then, we essentially value that level of violence perpetrated against the communities that is being perpetrated against. And they are the enforcers, that's their, their job, but they don't decide the policy, which creates an interesting point when people talk about, uh, well, are there good police, are there bad police? I think that's not even the real question. I think the real question is like, you know, do we have a, a rotten system or not? And I think the answer to that is yes, the system is rotten. Uh, I've talked to so many police officers, uh, both as a legislator, uh, but just in like regular life, who's, who told me to my face that, you know, I would report things that I've seen other officers do, but all of, all of our, um, our entire HR process for accountability, internal affairs is all internal, okay? And then oftentimes you get looked over for promotions and the like, if you essentially snitch on another officer, you know? So I think um, as, as we hop back and forth between the problems and solutions, I think one, one clear solution is that uh, police are not capable of self-policing. We don't allow most professions to self-police anyway. As an elected official, we do not self-police. We have a state prosecutor who reviews us all the time. Anyone can file a complaint against us and they review that. We have no agency over that process. Um, I think that in and of itself will, will help officers start to make one another accountable because they will go to this independent party uh, who can then hold them accountable instead of worrying about uh, retribution within the department. Um, that's, that's one part, okay? I'm from Prince George's County, born and raised. Uh, I remember the stories of Prince Jones. He's a 25-year-old uh, who's a Howard University student who was driving through Prince George's County and was murdered. Um, many folks may know him now because Ta-Nehisi Coates was a friend of his and references him in his book, Between the World and Me. Uh, but for me as a resident, as a young boy, uh, that stuck with me, same as Freddie Gray stuck with me. Now I'll tell you, uh, I think to uh, Delisha's point earlier, um, and, and Esther step, uh, kind of stepped in that with the, with the gentrification piece, um, if we want to have a conversation about these cycles of, you know, race and violence and whatnot, you can feel it coming. When I was a community organizer in Baltimore, and I would be knocking, to, you know, in communities to try to find the elders uh, to organize for change, I would see all these young people uh, just kind of like hanging around. And they weren't loitering. They lived in these communities, but they had nothing to do. And why didn't they have anything to do? Well, it's because, you know, two out of every three young black males in Baltimore City have some form of a record. And because they have their record in this red herring, they can't get gainful employment, they can't get a lot of government benefits and the like, right? So 
there's this energy that's building, this frustration because you know society has targeted them, they're not giving them the resources that they need, and then lo and behold, now officers break the back of someone named Freddie Gray, okay? And all that frustration just cracks, you know? But it didn't start with the murder of Freddie Gray. It's like, it's like a valve that's just been building pressure. And that's what called the snap, same as George Floyd, same as Breonna Taylor. Uh, and, it's, and it's not new. I mean, it's comparable to, um, you know, I think of Emmett Till, you know, um, and how the murder of Emmett Till in a lot of ways really launched the civil rights movement in the 50s. Um, that I think first, it's, it's, it's just good to put things in context that, you know, it, this isn't something that's just happened now. This isn't just because of Donald Trump either. I want to be clear, you know, when I was a community organizer in 2010 through like 13, um, you know, he wasn't in office, okay? And these same policies needed to be uh, addressed. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop there so I'm not hugging the mic. <laughs> yeah, and I, I really think the, the intersection between class and race is especially relevant in the United States because of our history. I mean, the class system in England, for instance, they, they break people up from, you know, different inflection points on where they come from the, the different parts of whether you're Scottish, Wales, or Irish, and things like that. Race and class here, it, they're, they're intertwined in, in so many ways. And even the union movements would prevent certain races from joining. And that's sort of also what happened um, to, to pit poor white workers against, you know, poor or enslaved or even freed black workers against each other after the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, these, so I, I really appreciate kind of the material aspect of, of looking at this, this question. I mean, some of the things that I think about on, on the policy side is, is like, yeah, obviously qualified immunity is insane because you have one officer who may resent the fact that the person he's working with is committing crimes, but they, they can't really, they don't talk about it. They don't, they don't aren't going to be um, actually investigated on it. The self-policing of themselves is also another huge problem. Having a working Department of Justice, uh, the Department of Justice was created by Ulysses S. Grant as a way to try to fight the, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and the fascism at that time that was attacking the freed black slaves that were creating militias and things like that. And were actually gaining on political power in places like Texas and Virginia at that time. So having a working DOJ, Department of Justice, that actually tracks these police departments with databases that can go in and reshape them, fire, hire, those type of things, licensing the police officers. Um, and then I, I think a huge part is economic investment, jobs, education, housing. But I'm, I'm going to turn it back over on Kalisha, I, if you want to jump back in or others, folks. Yeah, I, just because, you know, um, my, my background is in mental health, I just want to speak to that. A, a little bit. Um, so there's this concept in psychology called transgenerational trauma, meaning that from slavery to present, African Americans have passed down, not on a genetic level, so these changes aren't happening in the DNA. They're more like, like you know how you can turn a light switch on and off, they're triggers that can onset an issue later, which is why the African-American community has extremely high rates of depression and anxiety, 
we go undiagnosed because we can't afford to go get diagnosed for those things. And I want you to imagine how traumatized you are from seeing repeated violence in your neighborhood. It's almost as if you are completely desensitized to violence. So I need our audience to understand that when the powder keg blows, like it's just because like the desensitization has been turned off and it cannot linger in that way. It is almost as if it's a safety mechanism uh, to protect us from like really seeping and thinking about how many people have been murdered. Uh, and in Baltimore City in particular, there's a survey called the ACES survey. And it's basically, it measures how many traumatic events has happened in a child's life before the age of eight. And in Baltimore City, the overwhelming majority of children by the age of five have seen three traumatic events in their life. When you see a traumatic event as a child, that changes the structures of the brain, like physically changes them because the child needs to now adapt to trauma. They're in a trauma-filled environment, which means their brain needs to adapt and cope within that environment. So I think that it would be helpful if, you know, along with policy solutions, there just needs to be trust rebuilt. Uh, I, it, <laughs> the anxiety of not knowing if an officer is having a good day and, you know, will let you like act normal and will have a, you know, normal interaction, that is too much. I think the police do need to do a better job of reaching back out into the community and rebuilding that trust because it is non-existent. <laughs> I agree with what everyone has said so far, um, particularly about qualified immunity. That's just absolutely ridiculous. Um, but I also think it's not even just the police. You have to change the minds of Americans because most of these cases go before a grand jury first. And the vast overwhelming majority of Americans, if you ask them, do you lean towards believing officers just generally, like no matter what, the overwhelming majority of Americans believe police, like instinctively, yeah. because we've mythologized them in certain communities. In minority communities, we know exactly what's going down. In other communities, it, it's, they're using it as a protection, as a state-enforced protection mechanism. So until we as Americans can come together and acknowledge that we can live in two different worlds and reality, both realities can exist at the same time, um, I'm not sure if reform in the police is enough. Because if they're gonna go the grand jury route, you also need to have a slow change in how people just, they need to view the police as human beings who can make mistakes and not mythologize them to the point that they're blinded and, and won't acknowledge the mistakes are happening. Just, just to quickly so interject, I just too. wanted to add that to the comment. Yes, on, on the whole Breonna Taylor thing too. This no-knock warrant, you know, this this idea and this the drug, the war, the drug war. You know, you got rich people can take any drug they want, and get away with yep. it, and you got poor people who are attacked on. And there's plenty of information that anyone can look at. Who's like, where's the prosecutor who, who, and the judge who gave this warrant? And, and a no-knock no warrant in the middle of the night, you know, a person's walking their car, you can just mob someone and detain them and then arrest them and go through that process. You don't have to do a no-knock warrant on a drug, nonviolent drug vendor. It turned out no drugs, no record. You know, the boyfriend is 
legally owning a firearm, concealed carry, and it, it's just insane. It's it's absolutely insane. So, yeah, I can, the fact that no, go ahead, sir. Go ahead. Um, my thing with that is, so I can't forgive me for not knowing um, the guy who made the announcements of the charges is forgive me for not knowing his name, uh, but for him to get up in front of a crowd and say there was never a no-knock warrant that wasn't a thing that happened when in the news up to point it was acknowledged that there was probably a no-knock warrant it is like it 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 is being lied to like how how do we have images from the police reports which say basically nothing and yet you're going to come out and tell us that, oh no, the police had a, a explicitly said exactly what happened from beginning of the interaction to the end of the interaction. It, it's, it's, all, it's even more infuriating. It creates even more violence when it's just a blatant lie. You're, you, I would rather them get up there and be like, we don't care about her life, it's whatever sorry, there's going to be no charges, and then leave the stage. <laughs> Instead of just lying and being like, our officers were justified from beginning to end. How? You went to the wrong house. You executed a no-knock warrant, and now you're claiming we didn't. It's, it's just, well, so as, as someone who lived in Taiwan, let me explain something to you for the audience really quick. In Taiwan, you have to account for the bullets that an officer shoots. If you started the day with 30 bullets and at the end of the day you have 28, you better be able to tell somebody how that happened. They like track it ridiculously because the incentive is to de-escalate and not fire a weapon. So many situations just need de-escalation. There, there, there are situations where force is necessary, but the overwhelming majority you can have a conversation and <laughs> the potentiality for violence can go down. So I hope that I know they've in Louisiana, they've in that County, they've been like, all right, we won't do no knock warrants anymore. I think that needs to be a nationwide thing. We, we, they claim it's because of the drug war. And I'm just like, no, just, just get rid of all no knock warrants. That's just a recipe for disaster, especially for in, in over police neighborhoods. I could go on and on, but I could tell Esther she wants to get in on this. So I'm going to let her talk. Well, no. Um, so I think the biggest problem, right, is all the misinformation that has been perpetuated, right, about this, um, this really screwed up, I mean, because there's no other way to put it, right, drug bust. Um, and my understanding is that it wasn't a no-knock warrant. My understanding is that the judge changed it to a knock warning hours before. My understanding is that they had been surveilling Brianna Taylor because of her ex-boyfriend's involvement. But if they were truly surveying her well, or actually the ex-boyfriend, they would know that she had not seen him for some time. They, had, they would know that, she, you know, he was no longer interacting, doing his business, I guess, or whatever, out of, her, out of her home. They would have known that there was another man in that house. Um, 
I, I listened to um, a reporter that covered this story really in depth, and it included a lot of the boyfriend's uh, account. And, you know, he says that they didn't hear them. They didn't announce themselves, but what they did hear was it was a loud bang. People were knocking at the door. So their instinct was it's the ex-boyfriend. So when they bust through the door, he grabs his gun because, you know, he's licensed and legally, you know, can, can protect himself and his home. Where's the NRA, and, right? I'm sorry? Where's the NRA to defend him, right? Now, where were they for Philando Castile? But I digress. Um, you know, they, he shot once and then he, rec he recluded. And then not only that, like, they didn't even know he was in there. They didn't even, like, cause he had gotten himself, I guess, into a, a hiding place or whatever. And he actually called the police. He had called 911 while all this was happening. Because again, he thought that there was an intruder that had killed his girlfriend and he thought it was the drug dealing ex-boyfriend. And then that's when the police started to announce, you know, who's in there or something to that effect. You know, and people keep saying that she was asleep, that she was murdered in her sleep. She really wasn't. She was petrified. She had gotten up. She was right behind him. And she also thought she was going to die that day. She was right. But she thought her ex-boyfriend was going to kill her. You know, there's a lot of people that say, you know, were their neighbors, neighbors listen, they didn't listen. I don't know. But the point is that I'm trying to say out of all of this is that, you know, there's a lot of narratives that are getting pushed out. But what frustrates me the most is, um, you know, oh, she was a drug dealer. Okay. She wasn't, but let's just say she was. You know what I'm saying? Like, at what point... Are we going to actually value life and say, one, last I heard, no one's guilty until they're proven guilty. And two, um, you should not be going into a home, you know, guns blazing. And then three, completely discredit her life because, you know, she's a drug dealer. You know, if there's one thing that I learned actually at the School of Public Policy that, that um, I think is probably the most important thing as a policymaker, I'm not, that's just jazz in the room, but, you know, um, it, it's all about how, how things get framed, right? And when you hear people that are, you know, blue lives matter or all lives matter, you know, it's almost like character assassination is, is the first mechanism completely dismiss their value and it, I just don't understand how we can get past this like we've literally created a society where you trust the police and whatever they say you know you believe but then you talk about you know they get what six months a year of training you know they're not vetted um the way they should be I mean I have a brother who at one point worked for the Department of Labor and when he was getting the job, I think they knocked on everyone and their mother, like all of our neighbors, ex-girlfriends, um, because he was going to have access to information. Okay. Because that's it. Cause he's an economist boring as hell, but you know, they wanted to know, was he going to be trustworthy with that information? Yet we will give someone a gun and the right to take away life and Liberty. No questions asked. 
I mean, let's, let's analyze this without knowing who they were. Where did they grow up? What do they do? You know, like, we need to know more about people that are protecting our neighborhoods. So, um, yes, please. I, uh, I first like to say, you know, my, my, my mother is, ret is retired law enforcement, right? I, I value the people um, who serve in law enforcement. I really do. Because um, I remember being, uh, I remember a, a time where as uh, a kid, my siblings and I, uh, my mom had saved some money and took us to the circus in DC. I think the Ringling Brothers was in town. And we were all excited and we just like got our popcorn and said, <laughs> I know not anymore, um, but um, uh, we go to the Soul Circus now. But so as long as it's still here, but um, you know, we would do that. Right. And then as soon as we sat down, um, I think it was called MCI center at the time, this is years ago, I'm dating myself, but um, as soon as we sat down, um, my, uh, my mother got a call that they had a, you know, that she needed to go to some operation that they were running. Uh, and she drove us back home, dropped us off, put us to bed and drove. And I didn't see her for like another day. Really, really concerned. So it's like, I get the concern that folks have over the safety of law enforcement. With that said though, when you, when you check the data, there's a, you know, and, and this is a thing also, I really appreciate about the policy school because there's always that some part of you that's itching to find out if there's any ready available data. Right, so, so I'll do a couple things. Dr. Sean Ray, who's a sociologist at the University of Maryland, uh, has done a study with the Prince George's County Police Department and other police departments uh, to try to build empathy. And they, and they go through all these different techniques to do so. One of the things that they do when they measure is officers' propensity to shoot or not shoot, okay? Uh, and these are supposed to be trained professionals in law enforcement, right? Uh, over 50% of the officers who shot when they weren't supposed to shoot in these trainings were officers who were pulling a double or triple shift the night before, right? So you have some inclination, I think, to Alicia's point, uh, not just their, their mental health, but their physical health, okay? These folks are tired. No matter whatever training you gave them, they're reverting to their priors, okay? Because uh, they, aren't, um, they aren't rested. Why aren't they properly rested? Well, they're working overtime or triple time because we don't pay our officers enough, which is a fact, right? So like now you have all these folks in the field um, who one, the training isn't good enough to begin with, but even beyond that, they're, they're, they're physically and mentally tired. So they're not capable of responding to their best way. So that's something we can do right there. Just like we, we generally say we should pay our public servants better. We should do the same uh, for them and expect more of them um, as, a, as just a general rule. Um, on, this, on this issue of like no-knock warrants, one of the big issues we found in a lot of case studies uh, on no-knock warrants and the use of them is that oftentimes when officers uh, will go, they'll reach out to a prosecutor, go before a judge to get a no-knock warrant, they have circumstantial evidence at best, right? So what does that mean? They usually reach out to somebody who is a, um, a, you know, a witness for them, okay, who they usually have some other case with and they're trying to get their charges better or lowered or something else. Uh, or oftentimes, you know, they're looking for a cash payment or, or things of that nature. They will say, hey, I saw this person here, okay? 
One thing that a number of judges have said that, and this is in case law, that can improve the process so that you have less instances like Breonna Taylor is just to make sure that the police themselves are the eyewitness. Before you ask for any type of knock warrant, you yourself make sure that you eyeball that somebody is where you claim they are, as opposed to relying on someone else's advice uh, without doing your due diligence. Um, because I think to the, to, the, to the facts in the case of Breonna Taylor, there's no reason why that should have gone the way it, it, it did if people were doing their, uh, their jobs adequately. Um, I mean, I, you know, there's, there's so many things, you know, like I don't, I don't um, you know, whether you reform the police, you defund the police, you abolish the police, um, you know, I don't, I don't really get in, in, into the back and forth on it, but, but I do think we have to sever, like, the idea we had of policing prior to this moment for whatever we think needs to happen moving forward, right? So I, I remember about a month ago, maybe two months ago, there's a story in the news of uh, a, a man who's intoxicated. Uh, he fell asleep in his car, I think, outside of a Wendy's or something like that. I don't know if you all remember that story. And ended up getting shot by a police officer because someone called because the guy was just intoxicated. They didn't call because they felt threatened or anything like that. But for our 911 calls, who's, who's the people who respond? You know, so like we should be diverting some of these calls to the appropriate uh, body who should be handling it, whether that's a substance abuse uh, counselor or uh, someone with mental health training. One of the things that we're talking about in the legislature and some of my colleagues in other states are also talking about is seeing if we can deploy um, law enforcement with mental health professionals uh, you know, if, if there's some concern that we start to hear from some mental health professionals of responding to scenes without having law enforcement there, because you never know what could happen sometimes in an incident. Like what, whatever that is, I do think it is severing from the old for what is the new, because the old is grounded in maintaining property. You know, I mean, that's just the root. So, so long as you continue, you know, from that root, you just have to sever it and move forward if we're ever going to be able to talk about building community, which I think is the goal. And, and I also think that's being missing here, and like Esther brought this up earlier on, is housing policy, right? So like police are overrepresented in places that are, are oversaturated with poverty, right? Our, our housing policy was created by both the federal government and local government, you know, through zoning laws, um, uh, and, and things of that nature. And I think if we really want to have a conversation about improving policing and improving communities, we also need to talk about housing policy and making sure we have inclusionary zoning so you don't have situations where all the college-educated folks live in one place, okay, and the non-college-educated folks or people who haven't graduated high school all live in another place, you know, and all the opportunity is over here, and all the lack of opportunity is over here, and then you wonder what's going to happen. You know, so I, there's so much we, we have to do. Jazz, um, that story about Wendy's, the gentleman at Wendy's, the reason why they called the cops, and it was I, I actually heard the 911 call, it was the Wendy's cashier that called the cops because he had fallen asleep in the drive through. Hmm. So he was obstructing the drive through, but the 911 call. Uh, you know, the operator asked him, you know, is he dangerous? Is he doing this? And she was like, no, he looks like he's just falling asleep. Like she just needed someone to like. Move the car out of the way. <laughs> basically, you know, and it's not something that they could do because it's a graveyard shift in a drive through and, you know, they don't have a lot of people in the, you know, in the, um, you know, working at that time. 
Um, and it took like, I think 25 minutes to 30 minutes for that to happen. Like it just, it, it was a really bad situation and they just lost control of it. Um, but I was going to say, and just kind of starting even beyond the housing policy. I mean, I think the reality is, and when people don't understand, um, like what systemic oppression means and what systemic racism mean, like a black child's life, you know, um, the difficulty of its life begins at conception. When a black mother has, you know, is three times as likely to die during childbirth than I would. Like right there, people have to understand what that means. You know, yeah, and I would add on to that, that audience, we do control for income. So we, this is true, despite if you are mid to upper middle class and up, if you are a black woman, it, it doesn't matter. A black woman with advanced degrees is still three to five times more likely to die giving birth than say a white woman who has not graduated high school yet. It, it, so I feel like the difficulties of having that conversation is just that people, a lot of people haven't done the research or the work to see how all of these systems are interconnected in such a way that it's, it's a test for survival, as Esther said, from start, start to finish. It is horrific that the Baltimore City government can calculate the probability of death in a neighborhood. So for example, uh, if you live like near East Chase Street, if you know where that is, you're like, your lifespan, the probability of preventable death is in the 70% range. Like 70% of deaths are preventable and they can calculate it. That is insane to me that we can do that neighborhood by neighborhood. And yet, I just think we just don't have the resources or the resources aren't being put to tackle these things simultaneously. And I also think policy-wise, housing is healthcare, period. So I do think professionals, we need to come out from our, our little silos and realize that all of our issues are intertwined together. And if we help someone in this area, it can help someone in another area. So I just wanna end on that. Sorry, Esther, I cut you off. That's okay. That's, that's actually a perfect segue to go into the next topic of the economy, which I really think we need to focus on the material conditions. And the stock market is not necessarily or is not related to most people's material conditions. Let's be honest about that. So according to a new RAND study, if income had been distributed as evenly over the past five decades as it was in 1970, the median full-time worker in the U.S. would now take home $92,000 a year instead of $50,000 a year. And I follow this guy, John Williams of Shadow Stats. Uh, he's been around for about 30, 40 years. Uh, he's a little too libertarian for my taste, but he does run a very interesting unemployment number. And according to his number, August 2020, unemployment in this country was around 28%, or almost one out of three workers. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics has changed from measuring unemployment from a, and we currently use a U3 number. They have a U6 number, which is their broadest measurement of unemployment. 
But in 1994, they removed long-term discouraged workers from the unemployment rule. So anyone who's off unemployment assistance, which usually only lasts 26 weeks, um, someone who's part-time, who wants full-time, but can't get a full-time job, uh, these people are not, not counted as unemployed or underemployed. And then meanwhile, Bloomberg News estimate that they, estimates that the government bailouts could total 8.5 trillion thus far, which is about 60% of the GDP. Five and a half trillion of that comes from the Federal Reserve to banks, which we're not normally talking about. The, the media generally focuses on the, the fiscal policies of Congress, but the Federal Reserve has put out five times more money to the banks to try to capitalize the banks. A trillion comes, over a trillion comes from Treasury, and the rest comes from the FDIC for banking issues and FHA for housing issues. So to throw it out to everyone, how's the economy working for everyone? What are people seeing? That's, that's a great point. I mean, I, so I usually approach this, this issue from the position of um, small women and minority owned business owners. And I'll, and I'll say to you, uh, it's not working well for them. Um, I mean, we, we put together the uh, payroll protection program in the CARES Act with the hope of keeping Main Street alive. And, um, you know, it was, it was an imperfect bill, uh, you know, in, uh, that was passed in um, April. That was bipartisan. We wanted to give more specific language, um, hopeful that the banks and financial institutions would do the right thing, and uh, they didn't. They took care of their uh, largest businesses. Um, I should say their their largest business on the small business scale, right? And what is what does that mean? Well, you know, if you have 500 employees or less within the state of Maryland, if you have 500 employees, we do not consider you a small business. But the federal government, through the SBA, considers you a small business, and they made a rule where. It could be up to 500 business, 500 employees uh, per location, which essentially means uh, it's not small businesses at all, right? And that's why you ended up with uh, places like Shake Shack and other places who were able to benefit from this, as opposed to the mom and pop shops. Um, I, you know, I do think we need to do a um, uh, do a whole lot more to drive resources, particularly. Uh, from the traditional banks to our community development financial institutions uh, that are more focused on interventions uh, within um, everyday communities, be them rural, be them urban, be them suburban, whatever. Uh, our minority depository institutions, our credit unions in particular, uh, you know, they tend to be more the lifeblood of small businesses uh, in everyday uh, communities. And you know that when you, when you, uh, when a when a small business owner gets started, when a small business starts, they're more likely to employ the people they know and pay them fair wages to compete with the bigger folks, right? So like as you help small businesses grow, uh, you're actually lifting wages uh, and you're helping to build wealth more broadly uh, than concentrating it. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop there, but I, but I think we should refocus the conversation um, often from these, you know, what are these big banks that are too big now to a lot of these smaller, broader institutions that are doing so much with so little. Um, I don't know, Evan, if, when you asked that question, if you meant it like personally speaking, but myself right now, um, I make less and I have less job security. 
with a bachelor's in public policy and a master's in education policy than I did with no degree in the financial district. Um, and that's, it's, it's a tough pill to swallow because for me to go back to school, for example, you know, when I started at Maryland, my son was one and my oldest daughter was, I think, 15, 16 at that point. Um, and I had, you know, I had four total. Um, I quit my career um, to pursue this degree. So, you know, economy's not working great for me, but to be honest, it's never really worked well for me. Um, I hear so much weight put on the economy, which means the stock market, and everybody doesn't have stocks. I don't have stocks. Like, you know what I'm saying? Most of the people in my old neighborhood in Petworth, D.C., don't have stocks. Well, they might now because it's income brackets changed quite a bit since um, my mom bought the house in the 80s. But, like, I, it's just such a – I just – I think it's such a disconnect, you know, and it's funny that you mentioned like, like the seventies, right. As, um, you know, those were the good times, right. You know, what's happened since then? Like, let's think about policies. What's happened since then, you know, how much were those really wealthy people paying in taxes in the seventies, right. What happened in the eighties with Reaganomics, you know, and these people that live now in these depressed areas, and now I'm not talking about black and brown people. I'm talking about white people in the middle of the country, white people in West Virginia that, you know, you know, lived in areas that were booming in their moments. And when I say booming, I literally mean like the American dream as in well-paid job, kids going to a good school. You know what I'm saying? They have a little bit of retirement, their job security because of a union, like just a normal life right? It's completely depressed now because so many of those jobs went overseas or um, just don't exist anymore, you know? So now they're blaming or trying to find blame on someone else when they really just need to be able to look at their legislators and say, what are you doing for me? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, if Jeff Bezos all of a sudden spent or was charged 70% of his top whatever tier of, of, of whatever he earns every year. It wouldn't affect his quality of life at all, but it would hugely impact, right? Where he lives, you know, where he owns property, you know, and it would hugely impact um, in terms of, of taxes and its output right into the community, right? So we need to stop thinking, and now I might be speaking, overly speaking, but like for me, taxes don't scare me. And maybe it's because I grew up poor, but taxes, as far as I'm concerned, is my civic responsibility. And if you're making a lot more, then yes, you should be absolutely be paying more. Because last I saw, I live in Germantown and I have paved roads and I have crossworks, you know, that, that, um, that work. I have schools, you know, that are open and everyone that lives in the neighborhood can get into that school. You have to be able to put out to be able to give, right? I mean, to be able to get. And we need to stop looking at other citizens and saying they're taking from me and start making your legislators really responsible for what's happening in your, um, in your community, in your society. But I mean, without a doubt that tax, you know, taxing the wealthy has literally killed the middle class in the past three decades. Yeah, I would... <laughs> 
add on to that, that the psychology of how people view the rich based on race is very interesting. Um, because one reason I think it's a little difficult to tax the rich is we've mythologized them to the point that that's the American dream. Jeff Bezos is there because he worked so, so hard. And if you're not working hard, you don't deserve money. That is at the core of the cultural lexicon that we live in is people believe deeply. A lot of people believe deeply that if you just work hard, then you'll, ge you'll generate your own wealth, however much that is. And that's just not true. It's almost never been true depending where you live, that working hard will lift you out of poverty. The thing that lifts out people from poverty the most is education. And how do we fund education? Housing taxes. If you live in a terrible neighborhood, how are you, like, and you, people don't own the property, how are the schools going to be good? They won't. Adding on top of that, the government has cut from social services literally every single year for the past few decades. One of the things that COVID has done is shown the fragility of the American system and how much these systems rely on one another to function. And I think the economy, I, I think people underestimated just how much one sector going down impacted every sector. In, in ways that weren't imagined at the time. For me and other policymakers, you could see the writing on the wall. Like right now, we are probably going to have a housing crisis on the horizon. If it's not happening right now, it's gonna happen really soon because people can't afford rent. And then where are they gonna go? What are they going to do? I, it, if the government doesn't get on that immediately, we are going to have a worse housing crisis than we did in 2008 and 2009. Easily. Not to go back to policing, but just for one second. Um, New York City Police Department, New York City Police Department's budget, annual budget is $6 billion. If New York City invested that in their schools, they wouldn't need police or correctional facilities in one generation. $6 billion. I mean, can someone try and wrap their head around that? You know, and then the citizens of New York City will get upset because of riots, but then they don't research how much the city pays out to, um, you know, for payouts to pay for, you know, for bad behavior, for, um, you guys are nodding with me, so fill in my blank because my, my head just went blank. But like, you need to pay out to you know such individuals as Breonna Taylor's family. They won the highest settlement, twelve million dollars. That's taxpayer money. The yeah. government cannot afford to pay that. So we, as the tax, I don't understand why taxpayers are not incensed by how much they are put on the hook. Not even just for payouts to families, you know, pursuing civil suits, but just generally when you know the government doesn't feel like they want to pay for something or literally cannot afford to pay for it we as the taxpayers get shafted and unfortunately if we have a housing crisis we're going to have a healthcare crisis i mean we already have a um abysmal healthcare uh and i'm saying that as someone who's lived in other countries 
So I, I, can, I can tell you right now that it, the U.S. has a long way to go before it can compete with other developed countries' healthcare. But if people don't have homes, like even before COVID in California, the 30% of America's homeless population lives in California. And that was declared a public health crisis simply because there was a rise in communicable diseases. And so for me, it's frustrating listening to the news and not hearing people connecting all these dots together and not realizing that, hey, if people don't have housing, we're gonna add onto a pandemic with additional healthcare crises. Uh, we, the United States does not do enough preventative measures. I think that's at the core of the problem. Uh, we mythologize things to a certain point that we just, like too big to fail as a phrase is ridiculous. Yeah, and that, that was Eric Holder, you know, saying that. <laughs> even. And, and to talk about policing, I'm actually pro-IRS policing of tax evasion. Uh, the entire investigative unit of wealth tax evasion, of high wealth tax evasion, been gutted over the last 20, 30 years. I think it's important also to acknowledge that during the so-called golden era of capitalism in the 1950s in the United States, we had progressive taxation on, on the highest earners up to 90%. And we exactly. were very stable. And there is a one-to-one -one correlation that you can see these charts where with the unionization going down and that wealth inequality going up. It's, it's literally one-to-one -one from the 1970s. I think it's important to have a couple concepts on taxation. For, for instance, there's there's the regressive taxation, which is a value-added tax, gas tax, those type of things that are more on the consumer the, 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 that can affect uh, people who need or who are buying necessities and the amenities of the middle class and necessities of the poor, but doesn't affect the luxuries of, of the rich class. That's a regressive tax. We want a progressive tax and we want to avoid that poll tax or that flat tax where everyone pays the same as well. Um, that, that's kind of some of the things I, I'm, you know, I'm another part of it, uh, concepts, you know, in the policy side is that we oftentimes play in the field of fiscal uh, policy where it's taxes in, taxes out. And it's like, okay, we don't have enough money. The Federal Reserve is playing on a monetary policy where they create money and they issue credit and it goes to the banks and it recapitalizes the banks. There's this third concept, a Hamiltonian concept that was used with the greenbacks with Hamilton. It was used in the New Deal. It's this credit system concept where you, instead of just using a monetary policy to inflate these bankrupt banks to keep them from going bankrupt, you actually move that credit into the productive economy to rebuild the entire infrastructure. So the American, uh, the American Society for Civil Engineers, we have a $4.5 trillion deficit right now on our infrastructure just to get it up to working level. We're a D plus right now. 4.5 trillion. We've just spent 7 trillion recapitalizing the banks. That doesn't go anywhere. If we put that 7 trillion into our economy, into actual physical economy, put it to the states, put it to actual jobs, we could put 40 million people back to job, like work with union wages and, and, that's a, and create a new public works administration that rebuilds the infrastructure. Our municipal drinking water systems now all have arsenic problems. They all need to be rebuilt. All our roads, our, everything needs to get rebuilt here. You know, we need free internet for everyone. 
this is going to cost money, but it can also create jobs and it's an investment. And so right now everyone's also going to talk about debt. So the next person who comes in, if Biden comes in, it's going to be, oh, we need austerity. We need to cut services. That never works. That always contracts the economy. What you need to do is grow the economy so that this, the economy is so much bigger than the current debt that we have. Did the math, Evan? Yeah, I mean, this is- this got is all what, that math down. <laughs> we we got to be talking this way. So anyway, I'm sorry. I get on my soapbox. No, I, I completely agree. It's, it's, it, it, it's frustrating how much social programs, education are getting, you know, shafted by just bigger and bigger cuts. Every time we make a economic mistake and these lowered taxes, magically somehow when you lower taxes, apparently you get less taxes. Who knew? So then they have to cut money somewhere else. So I, if you do look at any study of GDP, the more educated your population is, the more people are above, you know, the poverty line, the, the more your economy is going to grow, period. Just, and so for me, the United States, one of the things that's interesting about behavioral economics is I think that we as a society need to commit that we are going to suffer in the short term so that we can invest and receive long-term benefits. Unfortunately, when you test people and you ask them those types of questions, they do not want to suffer in the short term to see gains in the long term. And that's even split up by class. So I think that if you want buy-in and you want you know, a grassroots movement to really pressure legislators to go down that road of progressive taxes and investment into the physical economy or just building up the middle class in general, you, you're going to need to convince people that, like, basically during World War II, we're not going to have enough vegetables. Everybody needs to step up to the plate. You might need to make a vegetable garden. Let's make community gardens. Like, it, it might need to be like that, where we're like, American people, you're going to need to suffer this long for this much, but if you do that, we'll be over here. And I think that if you can do that, we will be so much better off, you know, a generation down the road. And that's unfortunately what's gonna, you have to tell people, it's gonna take an entire generation to fix a problem, the systemic problems that we have. And it's unfortunate that we can't get as much buy-in for that as we should. Right, but I'll say this until um, this country deals with race, I don't see how we can achieve, you know, economic stability and um, let's grow our economy and, you know, like forget healthcare. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just such a huge issue, right? And Again, I go back to the framework, right? Because, um, you know, when, when the pandemic hit and um, everyone kind of had to isolate, it was really hard for my mom to stay in. And I understand that most people, you know, want to have some sort of a normal life, right? But my mom's Puerto Rican. Um, we never had money. We struggled a lot. She was a single mom. And she hustled all her life, 
right? And she put herself in unsafe situations all the time to be able to provide for her family. She did, you know, when she'd stand at a bus stop at four o'clock in the morning in DC, you know, in the middle of the nineties, um, when DC was the murder capital of the world, um, she was exposing herself, you know, and it got me to thinking, um, when it comes to trauma, just like Delisha talked about at the very onset of our conversation, black, and I'm going to also add Hispanic people, right? Especially like first generation immigrants that come to this country. They live in trauma from conception. They do. So they don't stop when there's this traumatic event happening. Why? Because we just push through it. We just push through it. That's what we do. Um, and that's in every facet of life, right? And you're taught to ignore what other people say about you. You're taught, um, I'm assuming, I'm, you know, dare I assume, jazz, delicia. Your parents probably had conversations with you when you guys were younger, you know, about how people would perceive you when you go to the store. Um, you know, I remember the first time I shop left shoplifted. I was maybe four or five. I was at the giant and I got all the way home and I had a ring pop in my, um, in my um, pocket. And, you know, my Nana made us walk back and she was like, you know, tell, tell the man what you did, you know? And, but she had no fear of the manager of the store, you know, reaming me or, you know, calling the police or, or anything like that, you know, and those are real worries for black parents. Um, and it's, it, you know, I, I had hinted also, didn't hint, but I, I had described that my first job out of undergrad was I worked at an educational and athletic after-school program. It was an educational space, but it was in Ward 5, and it was embedded in a housing community where the average family made $12,000 a year, $12,000 a year in Washington, D.C. in 2019. I mean, can we, can we give that some thought, right? And not generalizing, but you know, when a white person is down on their luck, they're down on their luck. You know, they've done everything that they can, they tried hard, you know, um, again, just kind of referencing uh, West Virginia and um, those affected by, um, you know, the loss of jobs, right? And it's, you know, now they have these high rates of opioid right? Addiction and death as a result, right? Overdoses, a lot of suicide too. Like, how would I sound if I said, well, I'm sorry, but you're just going to have to pull yourself up over your bootstraps and figure it out. Go get yourself another job. Go get yourself some more skills. It would sound really harsh, but that is the reality for what is told to black and brown communities day in and day out. Day in and day out. Pull yourself up from your bootstraps. You know, and you think about, again, systemic issues, you know, high incarceration of black men. And then as soon as they get out, the system has, has put them in a place where they no longer have access to any sort of social programs. So how are you supposed to pay rent if you don't have a job? Now you're on a list because you have a record. You can't go to school because... When I applied for FAFSA, I was asked if I had any sort of a criminal record. 
I'm going to assume that had I said yes, that might have been a stop for me in terms of being able to finance my education. You know, like, what are we doing to this group of people? How are they supposed to pull themselves up from their bootstraps and, you know, start a new life? And let's not even go into the details of people just have this general expectation that any person that's been in jail is a criminal, like um, a murderer or a rapist. No, a lot of them just can't pay fines because they're so freaking um, insanely priced, you know? And it's all about how you frame this. Now, you talk to um, white people that might look at, you know, the, the ones that'll say, oh, well, you know, she was a drug dealer. Brianna was a drug dealer, you know? No. <laughs> Like your son that just overdosed from opioid or who was selling opioids, is he just a drug dealer? You know, it's like the loss of humanity to me is just insane. And I granted, I understand that I am empathetic literally to a fault. Like it, it, it's detrimental when, when I'm losing sleep over what's happening in other parts of the country and in the world. But like, we need to have a really open and honest conversation, right? About race. Um, you know, for a long time, I am, I consider myself, I identify very, very strongly Latina. I'm hot-headed. Sorry to push a, a generalization, but it's the truth. I'm hot-headed. I'm passionate. I'm spirited. I have no problem, you know, telling people exactly how I feel. And for the longest time, I hated the fact that I look white, right? Because I felt like I was always having to prove my ethnicity, prove my ethnicity. I know more about my culture. I know, I know more about my history. I grew up in D.C., so I have a very close affinity to the black culture. That's how I grew up, you know? And for the longest time, I was just trying to find a place. And now in my position, I've realized that I can use the way I look, my privilege to get into these spaces and raise hell. And that's what I'm doing every chance I get. But I, I, I feel it my moral obligation to remind people constantly of how privileged they are and remind them, right? That their experiences that are incredibly similar to that of black and brown communities are the same. The only thing is that they have been convinced since they were children, right? That anyone that does not look like you is the damn boogeyman. Fear them, stay away from them. They, they're not like you and we have to start talking about this. Um, one last thing, you know, I, I saw, I don't know if it's a commercial, um, I don't know if it's the Lincoln Project or what, but there was a commercial that went out and, you know, these, these commercials are getting better and better um, against Trump, I guess. But there was this one image that I will have in my mind, right, of these four little blonde girls holding up Confederate flags. That's now. I'm like, those babies are my daughter's my son's age, my youngest ones right now. You know, it's taught, that shit's taught and it can be untaught. And we need to start to focus and have those conversations. They need to be outright. You know, when we talk about black people on food stamps, we need to start spewing out the stats on white people on food stamps too. Like that needs to immediately follow. We need to stop saying the majority of people that receive and benefit from these programs are black people. And that when white people need them, well, they've also paid into the system. Well, you know what? So have black people. 
And the majority of people that live on social programs are employed. They're just underemployed. So they are constantly feeding that system. But people don't want to see things for what they are. Again, it's all about misinformation and framing things so that, that way people continue to be divided. And the last thing I'm going to say about education. We have a system in this country where no one can go and get a college education for free based on income. Worst part, and this is uh, something that I, I am going to dedicate some time to, but worst part, FAFSA loans will not cover a state institution. So how are you, a black or brown student, supposed to fund your education if it's too expensive and you can't even get a loan for it? And these loans are not even, you know, bankruptcy won't even get rid of them. So you're gonna get that money back one way or another. Why aren't we funding college educations alone for these students? Like that is the key out of all of this. You know, if people, people really have to understand what systemic racism means. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, and I'm, as a Latina, kids in cages, it keeps me up at night for sure. But we can't do anything right until we fix this wrong as a nation. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's 100% correct. <laughs> and I, I think there's this concept of false consciousness where you have the, this using race to get the class, like a similar classes to fight against themselves in the sense that, yeah, there's that, oh, look at those black people taking this. And it's like, meanwhile, everyone loves Medicare. Medicare is extreme and everyone's on it. Everyone's parents are on it. And yet right now they're, they're talking about cutting it, which is gonna affect everyone. Yet it seems like, a, you know, some people don't even know their own economic interests anymore. And it is incredibly uh, disturbing. Yeah, uh, I would say that it's, we have something called like, um, like racialized imagery or coded imagery. Um, meaning that when you say the word welfare, people have an immediate image in, the, in their mind of what that is because we've racialized it. But if you ask people, so if you ask people, should we increase welfare? And if they are non-African-American, they'll say no. But if you say, oh, do you want to increase social security benefits? That has not been racialized. Everyone understands that that is everyone benefits from that. And people usually say, yeah, we totally want to find more social security benefits. I think our environment, the reason it's hard to have racial discussions is one, it is very difficult to get someone to wrap their head around just how literally every system in the United States is designed uh, in such a way that it can harm minorities. Like from from the job applications and your name being too ethnic and being just thrown out to environmental racism, there are so many ways that it manifests. And I, I do wanna you know, make a call out. I think that this is not a Democrat and Republican issue because there are racists in both parties. There are racists running both parties. One party for me is a little more palatable because at least they acknowledge racism exists. Um, but we need to, liberals need to acknowledge that you got, we got to clean all the houses. Like we, you, you haven't done a great job for minority communities and neither have the Republicans because you're both 
growing up in a context where everything is racialized and you just, you just, you're, you're trained not to really think about your own implicit biases and that results in policies where you're just perpetuating a cycle of systemic racism. So, and it's, and it's subtle. Yep. It's, it's subtle. I'll give an example for university of Maryland. Um, you know, I remember uh, growing up in Georgia's County, uh, going through the public school system. Uh, um, you know, I read their eyes were watching God, right? Um, you know, I, I read uh, Souls of Black Folks by W.B. Du Bois, right? The origin of intersectionality because he had this conversation of being both Black and American. Um, and coming to the University of Maryland and all my peers are like, you know, what's that? You know what I mean? You haven't read this? Uh, and I was like, sure, I'll, I'll read that. And then the response was like, oh, that's a black thing, okay? Uh, and, it's, and it's one of the interesting things because if you're gonna have a conversation about like race and the original question of race and violence in our cities in America, it's, it's the reality of like, if you're, if you're a minority in this country, you are born or you move into a, a system that is racialized, you didn't create it, you're just responding to it. Often you're not the person who even brings up race in any incident in which you're interacting, okay? Um, but you have to respond to these uh, built-in, I think to Delisha's point, like, you know, you have this imagery of, of um, you know, what something means, right? I just finished reading this book uh, called Stranger uh, in My Own Land. Uh, and it's, it's this book about a researcher from Berkeley who, who went and lived in um, rural uh, Louisiana for a couple of years to really get to understand the mindset of a number of like conservatives who uh, had actually more in common with um, you know poor urban folks uh, than they would like to admit, uh, but just wouldn't identify with them, right? And what came up, and this affects social policy, but what came up was this idea that America is this land that uh, has a line, okay? And everyone's in line trying to reach the mountaintop. And the folks who are further up in line are folks who are more well-to-do, you know? Uh, but, you know, the reason why they're further up in line is because we assume that they've worked harder, okay? Um, that is based on race, okay? Because if you are essentially, um, uh, you know, if, if you are, if you are white and you, you look at another person who's further ahead of you and they're white, you can say, well, they must have earned it because they worked hard because it makes you feel better about your position, okay? Uh, but acknowledging that like, well, maybe you didn't have any agency to begin with, uh, that, that is disempowering, okay? It was, it was very interesting of like the psyche, psyche of people who identify as conservative versus liberal um, and, and how, how we tell our deep stories about ourselves. And they have a big issue because who used to be behind them are all these minorities and all these women and all these gay folks and all, 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 right? And then now, because of social policy changes, um, all these others appear to be catching up and even surpassing you in line. And that makes you angry, you know, because the government has come in and propelled these people up to where you are in line or further as opposed to acknowledging that uh, the government and society through po policy has intentionally and forcibly held these folks back, 
right? Uh, so now that the government is, I'm not, I wouldn't even argue that they're not holding them back anymore, but holding them back less than they were before. And you can see people's real ability and they're leapfrogging other folks. Well, that's problematic now because it's not really about your ability or how hard you work, you know? Um, I, you know, I think some of this is about what Evan was, was talking about before, how, you know, moving past the 70s is GDP growth, income wasn't, uh, you know, moving uh, the same. And I, and I think what we saw is that um, this Robert Rach uh, uh, idea of countervailing power, we used to have organized countervailing power to a lot of concentrated power, right? So you have this, this minority of people who are super rich and powerful, and you have this broader group of people who are part of the NAACP or legal women voters, or they're part of their unions. And they use this, this, these organizations to leverage their power into policies, okay, that started uh, increased funding in education and allowing women to finally start to enter the workforce and, you know, uh, worker safety and all these things. And once we got away from that, the conversation has increasingly become what? This conversation over, over arguing over a few resources as opposed to uh, looking at who's really having all of this power. I mean, it's, you know, uh, we, we, we look at the golden generation, we idolize them so much, you know, but, you know, in that age, people were getting taxed, you know, 40, 50, 60% of their income for their nation, for the betterment of their children and their community to take care of their elders, you know? Uh, and now we're doing all we can to lower taxes. And, you know, it's like, I, I get it, but we're also having a real conversation about what are our values as a nation? you know, and, and, and what do we really want to accomplish as a people? I, I for one, think we need to get back to countervailing power um, and organize power. I think unionization is, is a component of that. Um, but I also think there's, there's, there's other things we need to do, like, like Evan was talking about with DOJ um, and IRS. Um, I think one of the things that changed in the 70s and the 80s is that, you know, CEOs used to have this mindset that their stakeholders weren't just their shareholders. You know, it also was their customers and their employees. Um, we've moved from that. I think we need to move back towards that and policy can influence that by forcing, uh, if you're gonna receive government tax benefits, then you have to have worker representation on your boards or things like that. Keeping employer compensation to some loose relative amount of average worker pay so that you can ensure that workers raises uh, wages are going up because that CEO wants their wage to go up, right? Um, you know, build some policy self-interest, um, uh, you know, into this. I, I think the same thing has happened with wealth as, you know, as I think generally Americans are becoming uh, poor uh, because inequality, income inequality and wealth inequality is, is increasing. You know, um, now you go into any community, you have single family homes, expensive townhouse communities or apartments, okay? You used to have large communities of condos or, or other housing situations that was built up in the Roosevelt era just so that people can get housing, okay? To, to get people out of like the essential ghettos and the like. I think we need to get really flexible on how we can allow Americans to um, just build wealth, house themselves. I, I think healthcare gets into all of that uh, but, you know, I think we are stuck on this. It's, 
I would just tell you, I just feel like as a black man in America, I get so tired about talking about race, you know, uh, because I think sometimes, sometimes I enter a room and I feel like folks feel like well, we have to talk about race because there's a black man in the room, you know, and it's just like, no, I, this isn't my problem, you know, this is you all's problem that you all think about when you see me and then I have to respond to. I would happily never have to deal with this problem uh, if I had the capacity, but I don't have a choice in the matter, right? And, um, and then with that, if I don't advocate for policy changes based on race, they don't happen, right? So like Maryland, the beginning of COVID was not tracking, uh, you know, positive cases, hospitalizations and deaths based off of race and gender and the like until we made a thing about it. And then lo and behold, we found out who is dying the most, black and brown people. You know, so then we realized, okay, we need to make very interesting policy interventions to make sure that they are getting the help they need. But if you didn't ask that question, you couldn't take care of your people, right? So like, if we are all American people, then that's all that should matter in these, in these culture wars, I think it's just a waste of time for us actually becoming the nation that we can really become.